Good morning. A couple announcements as we get started. As you know, our board has voted to uh, make the uh, DVD set, Healing the Mind, uh, DVC set available at no charge for anybody who's going to use it for any type of outreach, ministry, church groups, libraries. And we've been getting emails and requests from all over the world. Uh, we just sent uh, to Nigeria, uh, Australia, South Africa, We've been, uh, as well as many places in the United States have been requesting these. And we want to thank Bodell and Derek Morris, who's here today, because these DVD sets were made at the church they were pastoring at the time. So we appreciate you making that opportunity available. Yeah. So if you know people who'd like to use those, just let us know. We'll make those available. No charge. Okay. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and share today. As we talk about the Sabbath, may your spirit join us today, that our minds will be enlightened, we'll draw closer and in love with you and each other. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing lesson number three in our quarterly worship. And the title of this, les- this lesson is Sabbath and Worship. And somebody read the first paragraph for us that begins, As We Saw. Somebody read that paragraph for us, please. As we saw in the introduction, creation and redemption are central to the first angel's message, the theme of worship. The first angel calls us to the everlasting gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus. The salvation that includes not only forgiveness of sin, but power over it. The gospel, then, promises us new life in Christ, a promise of sanctification, which itself is part of the process of salvation and redemption. When you read this paragraph, any any thoughts crossed your mind? Any question marks? Any? Wait a minute. Anything? The gospel is more than just salvation. Ah, she questioned what I questioned. She said, what is the gospel? Is this... This definition, what do you hear the paragraph defining the gospel to be? Our saving of us. Is that the everlasting gospel, the eternal gospel, the gospel that has always been through, through all eternity past and will be true for all eternity future? Or how would you define the gospel? Good news about the character of God. God is love. God is love. And so, yeah, to me, the good news isn't the good news that God is good, that God is trustworthy, that God is love. That God is faithful, that God is kind, that God is patient, that God is loyal, that God is not like Satan alleged him to be. Isn't that good news? I mean, really, if you think about the context of where we are in human history and the universal history, the good news is all about God himself. Um, and, and salvation itself, John seventeen three. this is life eternal. Because they're, they're suggesting salvation is the good news. But Jesus said life eternal is knowing God. This is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and that, that was said. This is not Gnostic knowing. This is not Gnosticism. This is not an intellectual learning. This is that experiential heart bonding. Adam knew his wife Eve, and they gave birth to a son. You know, this is the, the knowing of God, that we come back into that intimacy where we know him and he knows us. Do you notice, though, how oftentimes the Gospels become a formula of salvation? That's the gospel, the good news. Jesus died, took the penalty of our sins, paid our debt. We accept that payment. We can have salvation. This is the gospel. It's a formula. And it turns it away from God to us. We become centered in the gospel. The gospel is now self-centered. It's all about us, about our salvation, our sins being paid for, our redemption, our cleansing. It's me, me, me. You remember the quote I read from Ellen White a few weeks back where she said, even though the race be wiped out and another creation populate the earth, the throne of justice must be eternally secure. It's not all about us. It's something much bigger going on. The plan of redemption, she said, has a larger purpose than the salvation of man. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The word remember and memorial in Hebrew comes from the same Hebrew root, which is ZKR, and no vowels there, so I don't know how to pronounce that, ZKR. Uh, when God said, remember, he was giving the people a memorial of two great events, one, of the, one the foundation of the other. So remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Question, can we make the Sabbath unholy? No. No, it's always holy. No. We don't have to ask. Can, I, I saw some heads yes, I saw some heads no. When, when Jesus, the Holy One of God, he was the Holy One of God, yes, was treated in unholy ways by unholy people, did he become unholy? No, so can we, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Is there anything we can do to make the Sabbath day unholy? 
Or is the Sabbath day holy? Regardless of what we do. So then what's the text talking about that? It's what we do. Keep our actions holy. So remember the Sabbath day to keep yourselves holy? No. To keep the Sabbath in a holy way. To remember the Sabbath day to keep the Sabbath in a holy way, but no matter what we do, the Sabbath is still holy. That's right. Hmm. Doesn't holy mean just to set apart as something special? What, and what does it mean to be holy? There, exactly. What does it mean? Does it mean to be set apart for sacred use? Is that what it means? Good question, Dean. Is that what it means? I read one time in something that Ellen White wrote that holiness is wholeness to God. Okay, so holiness is wholeness to God. Um, set apart for holy. What would it mean to be set apart? Set apart from what? Think it through. We're set apart, but we're set apart. We're set apart from something. From what? The rest of the week. The rest of the week? Hmm. So if we're set apart from the rest of the week, then we're holy. Because we're asking what it means to be holy, to be set apart. Set apart from what? Yes. Why was Israel set apart from the, the pagan nations? They were, yeah. they were set apart to reveal something about the character. Yeah, but what were they being set apart from? Because we're, we're trying to say, what is holy? Set apart from something. From what? The condition our world is in. Okay, there, it's pretty straightforward. From worldliness, right? Then we can say worldliness. Now let's define that. What's worldliness? Out of harmony with God is worldliness, okay? And is there any other way you describe worldliness besides out of harmony with God? Selfishness. Selfishness. Me firstness, survival of fittestness. It's all about me, selfishness. The opposite of God's character, which is love. So we want to be set apart from the world. Set apart from the world means to be set apart from selfishness. We put back in harmony with God's character. This would this be holiness? Yeah. Ellen White says in Zara of Ages two eighty three. But in order to keep the Sabbath holy, men themselves must be holy. Okay. So we can't keep the Sabbath holy if we're not holy. And so what does it mean to be holy, to be set apart? Does that mean that we have to be set apart from selfishness and worldliness? That our hearts have to be changed? Well, Wednesday's lesson asks us to look at Exodus 31.13, which says, Say to Israelites, you must observe my Sabbath. This will be a sign between me and you for generations to come, so you may know I am the Lord who makes you holy. Makes you holy. In order to keep the Sabbath holy, we must be holy. Holy means being set apart. Who is it? Is this something we can do for ourselves? Can we set our hearts apart from the world? Can we set our hearts apart from selfishness? No. The Sabbath is a sign that the Lord is the one who makes us holy. Hmm. So does keeping the Sabbath holy mean we avoid work on the Sabbath? Maybe. I like that answer. <laughs> Maybe. I didn't get that one growing up. Yes. Can we desire to be set apart even though we can't do it ourselves? Can our hearts want that? Of course. That is the, of course, that's our desire. Yes. That's the Holy Spirit. If we have the desire, Holy Spirit's working on the heart. Because without the Holy Spirit, there is no desire except to be more like Satan. You know, our natural heart is in harmony with the world and selfishness. It's more about me. Any desire for good is evidence of the Holy Spirit's working in the heart to draw us back to him. Yes. Other question? I'll hand. Um, so this idea of work and Sabbath, because when you were growing up in the church, was there ever an emphasis on Sabbath and work? Yeah, I mean, it, it seemed to focus that direction frequently. And Sabbath and fun. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up here in this community, went to this school system. Russell, you're not in your head. Anybody else go to this school system besides Russell and I? Did, did you have some connection there between Sabbath and work and Sabbath and fun? Yeah. What was that connection? Neither is allowed. Neither was allowed. Yeah. <laughs> Waiting on Sabbath is okay. Water above the knee becomes sin. Am I the only one that heard that? No. Yeah, exactly. So let's see if we can't though, tease out what real Sabbath holiness looks like and real Sabbath experience looks like. Um, this is out of uh, Patriarchs, no, excuse me, Zara of Ages 206. 
talking about work. Remember Jesus said to the Jews in his day that he's always at work and his father's always working after he healed somebody on the Sabbath? And they picked up stones to stone him because he was working on the Sabbath. Because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Something was missing in their understanding. Jesus stated to them that the work of relieving the afflicted was in harmony with the Sabbath. It was in harmony with the work of God's angels who were ever descending and ascending between heaven and earth to himself that he, uh, in, in service of humanity. Should God forbid the sun to perform its offices upon the Sabbath, cut off its genial rays of, from warming the earth and nourishing the vegetation? In such a case, men would miss the fruits of the earth and the blessings that make life desirable. And man also has a work to perform on this day, has a work to perform on Sabbath. Uh, and then the last paragraph says, The demands of God are even greater upon the Sabbath than upon other days. His people then leave their usual employment, spend their time in meditation and worship. They ask more favors on him on Sabbath than on any other day. They demand his special attention. They crave his choicest blessings. God does not wait for the Sabbath to pass before he grants these requests. Oh, isn't that good news? Well, Sabbath, God's resting today. We can make our requests, but they're, you know, they'll, they'll be in his voicemail for, for tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Let me finish this quote. Well, that's a great question. It says, Heaven's work never ceases, and men should never rest from doing good. The Sabbath is not intended to be a period of useless inactivity. The law forbids secular labor on the rest day of the Lord. The toil that gains a livelihood must cease. No labor for worldly pleasure or profit. Worldly pleasure? Pleasure? Worldly pleasure. Think that through. It's not just pleasure. It's worldly pleasure. Or profit is law... Um, no labor for worldly pleasure or profit is lawful upon this day, but as God ceased his labor of creating and rested upon the Sabbath and blessed it, so man is to cease the occupations of his daily life and devote those sacred hours to healthful rest, to worship, and to holy deeds. The work of Christ in healing the sick was perfect accord with the law. Oh, and it says in this other quote, it says, He will not hold those guiltless who neglect the relieving of suffering on the Sabbath. So there's a work to do on Sabbath. Yeah? It's not to be a day of lay activities. <laughs> Remember lay activities? <laughs> yeah, we used to go home and lay down and take your nap. People have defined what it is. Pardon? People have defined what Sabbath keeping is. Exactly. Yeah. And, and do you notice how the Jews had a definition of Sabbath keeping? And was it focused primarily on God, his character, his government, his methods, his principles of beneficence, and that's what Sabbath fulfillment is, fulfilling God's character in our lives? Or was it focused more upon keeping the Sabbath holy? The Sabbath is a day that we have to now uh, abide ourselves to. It becomes an institution that requires our loyalty. Is that right? Is that the mindset? Have you ever felt that mindset in the church today? How do we draw the difference? I, I want to tell you, I appreciate this class so much after the tornadoes that we had where, where neighbors and friends were, were put out in, in severe distress. This class was willing to go out on Sabbath and help their neighbor clean up. Wonderful. I know a time and a place where that would have not been legal. Yeah. Other thoughts about this whole idea of Sabbath and work? We had a Moravian neighbor, um, and we were coming home from church dressed, you know, in a little more than work clothes. And, uh, and he had his head under the hood of his car, which for most men means you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> but, but we do that anyway. It's just kind of a man thing, you know. So I, I walked over and I said... Uh, what was this, Michael? I said, Michael, what's up? He said, I, my, I have a dead battery. And I said, well, I'll, I'll go and get some jumper cables. And uh, so I went over, came over, jumped his car, got started, and he looked at me a bit shocked. And he said, I wasn't going to ask for any help because I knew it was your Sabbath. And my response was, it's good to do good on the Sabbath. That's what Jesus said. Amen. But now if he wanted to remodel his kitchen, you know, I'd help him some other day. Right. So I, I, I think he caught a glimpse there of, of the blessing of Sabbath. 
Yeah, no, I love that. That's exactly right. Helping others on the Sabbath. And sometimes when it becomes about us, I can't do this until Sabbath's over. I've got to keep the law. I've got to keep the Sabbath. I'm not allowed to work yet. But as soon as sun sets down, I'll be over my cables. It's about us, about me, me first. When it comes about others, hey, you need help. Whatever day of the week it is, you're in need right now. You need help. I'm going to help you. Then it's about love. That's Sabbath keeping, isn't it? Yeah. If it's a need, like you, you saw, not just a want. And that's the thing. The difference is a need versus a want. Yeah, great. Third paragraph in Sunday's lesson, uh, it says, Creation and redemption are the foundation of all biblical truth, and they are so important that we have been ordered to keep the Sabbath as a reminder of these truths. I'm going to tell you, when I read that, it reminded me of Christy and I. Christy and I will tell you, I'm not sure she's thinking the same thing right now, probably whispering to, to Russell back there the same story I'm about to tell. We were at a church, I won't tell you which one, it was an Adventist church, Sabbath morning, visiting, we weren't members there, and at the introductory prayer, all kneel down after the introit for the introductory prayer, and the pastor gets up and prays from the pulpit, God, we are here today on your holy day. We are not here to hear special music. We're not here to visit with friends. We're not here even to hear the sermon. We are here for one reason and one reason only. You have commanded us to be here. That's what I heard when I read this paragraph. That's what I heard. I heard that that, the voice coming that we have been ordered to keep the Sabbath day. Did Did you hear it differently than me? No, same. Is that the reason you come each week? Because God has commanded it? We will be dutiful and obedient soldiers. Amen. Well, yeah, go ahead. The thing is that you've got to remember when the Jews heard that order, they were basically being told they, were, they had to rest because that was part of God's plan for slaves who had been working every day for 400 years. They saw that as the kind of order which says you've got to sit down and eat now that you're starving. It was not an order in the sense that we think of a command that was against what we wanted to do anyway. How do you hear the pastor's prayer? Well, that's different. <laughs> yes. It's about the way the commandment is structured. It's commandment, but it's not meant to be onerous. So, so you, maybe you're suggesting this. Is there a difference? Do you hear a difference between a military commander giving an order, a governmental command, a dictator's dictate, and a doctor's prescription? A doctor's order. Doctors give orders too. Mm-hmm. Do you hear? Are, is there a difference between those types of orders? Husbands and wives do also. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're, there's another can of worms right there, isn't there? <laughs> okay, pardon? In love, right? Uh, I command you. <laughs> okay. So, but but do you hear a difference between like a military order and a doctor's order? Yes. People don't like the doctor's orders either. People may not like the doctor's orders. Frequently, they don't. I have patients all the time who resist doctor's orders. Uh, other, isn't that true? Healthcare providers, sure. Uh, but are they given in the same mentality, expectation, structure, threat, enforcement of law? If you're in a military and the commander gives you an order and you don't obey that order, what happens? You get court-martialed. Legal consequences. This is how many see God. God gave an order. He's the great commander. He's the general of the universe. He commands. The, the, the archangel that commands, commands all. And if he gives an order, you better obey or else he'll prosecute you in the courts of heaven. Or is it, like was suggested back there, this is a doctor's order, and the doctors prescribed this for what purpose? Because these slaves needed to rest. These slaves were exhausted. They needed it one day in seven. Uh, it was ordered or commanded for them at that time. And if you disobey the doctor's order, does the doctor take you to court and prosecute you? No, but you might end up having a stroke because you didn't control your high blood pressure. Right, and so, so if you don't obey the doctor's order, generally, not that doctors are perfect and doctors make a mistake, but generally the principles of medicine aren't doctors giving orders that are designed to be in harmony with the laws of health. Yes. They're trying to be legal in sense that they're putting us back into harmony with the laws upon which life was built to operate, and you break those laws, then you have a stroke, you have a heart attack. Yeah, but you yeah, don't get legally prosecuted. Yes, on the other hand, yes. When God gave the Sabbath, uh, there were no slaves that needed to rest. Oh, can you pause on that? That's perfect. We want to talk about that. One other quote, and then we're going to come back to your question, because that's a perfect question. Um, So, listen to this from the white estate. And those of us who grew up in the church, 
I'm going to tell you, I never heard this. This is from the White Estate, okay? This is when they put this in capital letters. When you read their books, it's cal- capitals because they want to distinguish this. This is what the White Estate people are writing rather than Ellen White, even though they quote one sentence of her in the very beginning. This is, Ellen White once wrote, a sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. This is out of that I may know on page 120. Now the White Estate goes on. In writing this, God's servant anticipated the number one problem confronting educators and parents, how to create a positive attitude on the part of children toward the church. This is the subject in the following letter. Young people are constantly urged to follow the advice given in 2 Peter 1, but many rebel. Why? Because without a positive concept of God and what he wishes for them to do, Children relate to their church and to God out of fear or sheer duty rather than admiration. Religion becomes oppressive and it is eventually rejected. One more paragraph. This is still from the White Estate. Clearly our duty is to introduce children to the God who stands behind the church's doctrines and standards. Second Peter helps us with this. The emphasis is on obedience and growth based upon knowing God as a friend. Amen. Where was that when I was growing up? Did you get that, Russell? Never. <laughs> Lori, did you get that? So-so. Yeah. You did? In the, in the school or from your parents? There you go. So yeah, blessed, blessed are you. Yes. Yes. John's wife, Fran, once told me that when they were when they were raising their kids, the kids learned to love Mrs. White because they, she would say stuff like, well, I don't really feel inclined to say yes to what the kid was asking for, but Mrs. White said I should say yes as often as I can. So I'm going to agree. Right. She does say that. So I want to agree that I'll go ahead and do whatever it was they asked of her. And they began to think, wow, God really is in Mrs. White and instead are looking out for my interests, what what matters and care, you know, what I need for growth, and, and try to use those, the religion, as a positive thing for the child. Yes, you can do something. I, I like it. I like. Thank you. Uh, do do you, do you like this idea of o- obedience and growth based upon knowing God as a friend? A couple of lessons ago, didn't the introduction to this quarterly say we're not to view, we're not to treat God as a friend? It did. Okay, just checking. Yeah, it did twice at least. Um, Question though, uh, well, I mean, I would like to say that I read this, I thought, wow, I did, I, I read this for the first time in my life this week as I was preparing for this lesson. I'd never noticed this before. And I would like to say that it's our goal in this class to try and help people see God as a friend. I mean, that's the whole deal. And then obedience, seeing God as a friend and all the things he's trying to do for you. Then you see him and all his instructions, all his directions, or as a loving, friendly physician who's trying to heal and help you, not as a dictator who's trying to control you. And it makes all the difference in our world and our attitude, how we respond when we see God from this light or this light. Why is it you think there's so much resistance to that in the church? Yes. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. John. Yes. The friendship that God has with us is not quite the same as the friendship we have with each other. We are God's friends if we understand he is the creator and redeemer, and we are human and finite, and respond in love to that obedience, that command to obey. It's not quite... I hear what you're saying, yet isn't it true that God wants from us our love? That's, well, that's the commandment. That's and can, the commandment. can love be commanded? Did that work when yes. did that work when you were dating your wife? Well, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> love can be commanded in the sense that if God makes it clear that love is the essence of what it means to be a child of God, and we can't love or we don't want to love, then we realize at that moment we're in disobedience. Okay. And so the question is whether disobedience is scary enough. I I don't know what I don't like that word. If, dis, if disobedience is unpalatable enough for us, we will then try to find out what it means to learn to love. Yeah. Yes, over here. Can I just comment on that? Yes. Uh, because I just mentioned my mother, who um, was a very strict Adventist who gave her children enormous personal freedom. And um, what that did was, when we were tying in this into command, 
So, you know, you can walk on that wall and you may fall off, but I'm not going to tell you you can't walk on the wall. You know, the worst that will happen is you break your arm or whatever. So if you have, if you grow up with this enormous personal freedom, as a teenager I got, so I began to go and ask my mother for advice that she wasn't giving me because I knew I could trust her to care about my well-being. Does that make sense? It does. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. In a devotion I was reading just yesterday, um, the day before, had come uh, with the thought of, um, if you don't hate and sacrifice and, and see no one but me, you are not my children and you are not walking with me. I thought, wow, that's severe. The next day, the devotion said, the whole reason that Christ asked us to see him alone and to look at him solely and to understand is that he is the only one that will never disappoint you because it's out of true unselfish love and growing that relationship that if you seek him and you grow in that understanding of love, then the obedience will simply flow out of that you find that if you're doing something else, that it separates you from that one that you love so much. And you don't want a wall to go up between you and the one that you love so much. And so because of that, you want to be with them. You want to walk with them. You want to experience and share every moment with them. And it turns into, yes, there's obedience, but the reason for the obedience is not that you were driven to it, it's that you were drawn to it, like we were talking about the drawing to the cross. And I appreciate Jim's comment because he helps us see where some of the tension lies in this question. Uh, Can love exist in an atmosphere without freedom? No. So how do we uh, balance that tension between God, and he's quoted the scripture, God has this is my commandment. You are my friends if you obey what I command. The commandment is you love one another. And you love... Over in that chapter, every right. other verse says, the command, I, I'm commanding you to love me, and the next verse says, this is love of you. So do you hear the command as a military commander, or do you hear the command as a doctor? This is my prescription. This is my prescription. This is my doctor's order. This is what I'm telling you to do. This is the direction you have to go. Is it the military commander, and then you come under the threat of legal penalty if you don't, or is it design protocols we were built god built us as the creator to operate on the principles of his character that's how we were built to run and we don't run on that anymore this is what he said the command we're like wait i'm I'm not doing that i'm out of harmony with that something's wrong with me and that conviction then brings us back to the one who designed us had a patient in my office this week and i said to him they were whole they, they are not a believer in god and they're really struggling with this whole idea of believing in god and i said to him um if you had a, uh, what, what car do you drive? And he drives a, I think it was a Ford. And I said, unloaded gas? Yeah. And I said, um, if, uh, if somebody sabotaged your car and put sugar in the gas tank, it doesn't run now, would you have confidence if you took it back to the Ford plant where it was built that those guys could fix it for you? Well, sure. I said, well, that's the point of coming back to God. He built us. We've gotten all messed up. He can fix it. I mean, he can, he can, he can rebuild us. And that's what part of what Christ came to do. Yes. And so what ties what uh, Jim's saying, you're saying, is um, the difference is God is superior, just as my mother had more knowledge. And so when you go to the doctor, he has a knowledge that we don't have. And God has a knowledge of the present and the future and the past that we don't have. And so we can trust him even when we don't totally understand. Yeah, and God is superior not just in knowledge, but in character in ability, in being, in every way. But he's demonstrated himself to be completely trustworthy. But interestingly enough, with all of that, he says in John 15, 15, there's a reason he no longer calls us servants, he calls us friends. Because servants don't understand what their master is doing. Everything I have done, I have made known to you. He invites us to actually understand. Why is it important that we understand? Think about, uh, let's just a very simple analogy. You're, most of us in here were probably taught by our parents to brush our teeth when we were kids. At some point in our early development, we didn't understand the reason. We only knew the rule. Now, we did it because we didn't want to be punished. We did it because we loved our parents and wanted to please them, and it made them happy. We did it for, for very childish reasons when we were small. Somewhere along our development, we came to understand why. And when we came to understand why... The rule became obsolete. It was only, it was all freedom. We wanted to do it. We were participants. If we never understand why God asks us to do these things, tells us, instructs us, commands us to do these things, if it's only, well, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it, I don't need to know why. Imagine if the only reason you have today, the only reason you've ever known to brush your teeth is because your mom had a rule for you to do it when you were a kid. That's it. No other reason exists. What's the likelihood you'd still be doing it? 
See, it's only as we come to understand. That's why come let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow. It's reasoning out with God that he transforms our values, our, our motives, our understanding. We become intellectual Christians, as Ellen White liked to say. And then we freely participate and we return to God this great love to him. Let's go back to the Sabbath, because this is what we're talking about today. The Sabbath, Monday's lesson, bottom green section says, if we truly accept the Sabbath for what the Bible says, it is a memorial of God's six days creation. How can we be protected from false ideas about our, our, our origins? That the Sabbath helps remember that we did not evolve. This is what it's suggesting. I'm a creationist. I'm a six literal day of creationist. Six 24-hour periods followed by a seven 24-hour period of the Sabbath. That, that's my belief. I, I think the evidence of design in nature is, is too overwhelming and the idea of spontaneous generation of nothing is too preposterous. Um, to believe, regardless of the, the so-called science that suggests that such a thing happened. But, uh, agreeing with all this, um, and I agree that the Sabbath exists as a, as a memorial for us to remember God as our creator. I agree with all that too. One of the things we could say to our friends who don't believe this would be, if you don't believe that God created, and you believe that we evolved over billions of years, where did a seven-day weekly cycle come from? We have you know, astronomical reasons for months, days, and years. But why a seven-day weekly cycle? Now, some people get confused within our church about the seven-day weekly cycle and the Sabbath. They're not the same thing. We have a seven-day weekly cycle, and we also have a Sabbath. But, and the reason I say they're not the same thing is because don't you have friends who worship every week, every seven days on Sunday? Now, are those friends forbidden from worshiping the Creator God on Sunday? Are they forbidden from remembering the Redeemer God on Sunday? No. So, while it is true the Sabbath is a reminder of creation, those who worship on Sunday can also appreciate the Creator and Redeemer. And in fact, in the world today, as number, number of people alive, which do you think is greater? The number of people who believe in the six literal days of creation, God, that worship on Sunday, or the number of people who believe in the six literal creation, God, who work, worship on Saturday? Which do you think is larger? Sunday. So, while I don't dispute anything they said, I don't find this necessarily the watershed breaking point that separates us and separates the issue that's important in the time and history in which we live of why the Sabbath really is important in our history and where we are. I think there's another reason. What do y'all think? No? Maybe? When God created Adam and Eve, and this is back to the question earlier, when God created Adam and Eve in Eden... Was the Sabbath given to Adam for physical rest purposes? No. Was it given to Adam to remind Adam he didn't evolve from lower life forms? <laughs> was that his purpose? Was it given to Adam to remind him that Jesus died to save him? No. You see all the reasons we attach to the Sabbath, and I think that's fair. I don't, I'm not saying those are wrong. In its origin, what was its purpose in Eden? We miss something if we don't know it. We need to identify its origin. What was its purpose there? Yes. I've discovered as my journey has progressed that I like to look at the Sabbath as a celebration of completion. It's a completion. So many times in my life, if I'm letting God guide me day by day, the issues and things we've been working on throughout the week are summarized, completed, evolved, and made complete on Sabbath through many different ways. There's a suggestion in Hebrews 4 about the Sabbath God completed all of his work. There was a completion there. Question, what was the work that he completed that week? Was it simply creating? In other words, God completed. He'd been working on the universe for billions of years. We know that in Job chapter 38, the sons of God sang together for joy when the earth was laid. So there was intelligent beings in the universe before earth. So creation started sometime before earth was built. Is it saying that, that this was the final piece of the cosmic creation puzzle and this was it and now he rested from all that he'd ever done? Or is it saying something else? Yes. The, the whole controversy had been begun over the character and government of God before the creation and then the day of rest. So then we have, we have those days of creation and that revelation of information that begins to answer the questions and then that time set aside to give the people freedom to think that through. I love it. I love what she's saying. This is where truly Adventism stands apart. If you look at the history of Christian thought, Adventist, the Adventist church 
comes along with the great controversy perspective. You see some of this in the early, early church people, like the first century. But then through the Dark Ages, it was lost. And you come back now to taking the focus off of me. It's not about me. Ellen White refocuses our attention on there was something more significant than the salvation of man going on in Christ's mission to earth. Angels needed the cross of Christ, she, she talks about. That the, that the throne of justice must be eternally secure, even though the race be wiped out and another uh, creation populate the earth. Something more was going on. So we go back. Let's go back before Adam sinned, back before Adam was created. What was happening in the universe, according to inspiration, before earth was built? There was war in heaven. And what kind of war? Revelation 12 uses the word polemo, where we get the word polemic. Polemic means a argument or a controversy built on words or ideas. An undermining of another person's... If you actually look in the dictionary, polemic means something that undermines or attacks someone's principles. So think about the war in heaven. Satan attacked God's principles, his laws, his ways of doing things, his method, his character with words and undermined the intelligent beings' confidence in God, in their mind. They questioned God. God was, can we, this is why Romans chapter 3, 4, Paul says, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. May you win your case when you take it into court. Because he was alleged. I've given, some people have a hard time with this. I've given this analogy before, but just imagine that um, you have been falsely accused by someone of cheating on your spouse. And you haven't cheated. But the person who's accused you hasn't accused you. They went to your spouse and showed your spouse pictures that they've created on their computer of you with somebody else. And your spouse is now being tempted to believe the lie. Even though you've done nothing wrong, if you love your spouse and you do, you want reconciliation and harmony with your spouse, which you do, won't you now have to prove yourself, even though you've done nothing wrong? Because the lies believed break the circle of love and trust. If, if your spouse believes you've been cheating, won't something change in, in their heart? Yeah, that's what happened. He told lies. The heart trust of intelligent beings was broken in God. God loved us so much that he went on the offensive to uh, bring the sword of truth, wielding the sword. Remember the rider that comes with a sword out of the mouth? This is, this is great imagery because what comes out of the mouth? But words. And Christ is the one who speaks the truth. And the sword is a two-edged sword, cutting bone from marrow. And it cuts away the lies. And Christ said, I've come to bring, not to bring peace, but a sword. Which sword? Sword of truth to destroy the lies, to cut us away from the distortions that hold us in mental bondage. This is a war, a polemic going on. War was in heaven. So, Christ stands up and says, and the Father stands up and says, what Lucifer is saying is not true. That's the end of the story, right? Everybody's won over, no more concern. Just, just a claim. No, he began to give evidence. This is how I understand it. Not only did he declare the truth, then, and this is why Jesus Christ was the member of the Godhead according to Scripture, through, all him, through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made that has been made. Why Christ? Because Lucifer's allegation was not I am equal to the Father. Never made that allegation. I am equal to Christ. That was his allegation. Christ and I are no different. And he coveted Christ's position with the Father. That was his... So Christ now, God doesn't just say, no, there is a difference. Christ goes along and now creates. So in his creation of planet Earth, making man breathing into him the breath of life, he is demonstrating, hey, there is something different about me than about Lucifer. We're not the same. That, that was a false allegation on Lucifer's part. So he's giving evidence. Lucifer, on the other hand, is still a, a wily foe, and you're that, you're that angel in heaven watching as the questions are raised. You're watching the evidence be given. I mean, you can imagine the crescendo in heaven as, let there be light, let the firmament come forth, let land come forth. All these creatures are popping out of the dirt, and just, boom, dirt turns into birds, and they start flying away, and, and dirt turns into elephants, and they go, like this, okay? I mean, dirt is popping into life. That'd be pretty cool to see, wouldn't it? All right? I mean, they're watching this. And, and, and as they're watching this, the, the energy is building. Wow, did you see what God did today? What, what do you think he's going to do tomorrow? And on day six, he says, let us make man in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply in a world without sin. And, and Satan is there. Now, how much energy, how much power and might do you think it took to create planet Earth and this solar system in our sun? We take a few grams of matter today. We can do this. We have technology. 
and we can turn that matter into energy. We call it a nuclear explosion. Just a few grams. How much energy to make an entire planet, a solar system, a sun? This was a huge display of power. So Lucifer's there saying, guys, guys, I never told you God wasn't powerful. I've, I've told you he's powerful. The problem is he's not good. You can't trust him. He'll coerce, he'll abuse, he'll manipulate. If you don't do what he says, ultimately, he's, you know, he's already threatening to kick me out of here. Watch, if in three weeks I'm not gone. He's going to throw me out. And any of you, because he's got power. He abuses it. You can't trust him. Now, in this context, God just demonstrates. And, as I say, and look, he just created this world, and he created new beings. He's telling you, look, if you don't get in line, well, he's going to wipe you out and replace you with some new beings. Threat, intimidation. He's trying to intimidate. He's trying to uh, make you afraid. And so in this context, God says, universe, you've heard the allegations of Lucifer. You've heard our testimony. You've seen the evidence supplied. Now, universe, take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. Think for yourself. No coercion, no pressure. What does it say about God in the context of the great controversy where his right to rule is being threatened that instead of exercising power to force his way, to punish the opposition, instead of exercising power in this way, he instead creates a day for the purpose of free thinking. So the Sabbath itself exists as evidence. Every week the Sabbath proves God is not like what Satan says. Because as God was like Satan says, we would have no Sabbath, we would have no day for freedom. That's why Satan hates the Sabbath. Its very existence is evidence that he's a liar. See, on day one through six, we learn God has power. As we learn day one through six, power, power, power. Day seven, we learn the character of the one who wields the power. That's why Sabbath is holy. It's filled with truth, presented in love, leaving his creatures free. And true Sabbath observance, what Ellen White said, if you're going to keep the Sabbath holy, you yourself must be holy. We must possess God's character. We must present truth in love, leave people free. This is Sabbath observance that transcends a one day in seven experience. It's a life experience. Thoughts about any of this? It's powerful. When you get your mind around it, it just, every time I talk about it or think about it, it just moves me with awe for how incredible God is. Incredible, yes. All of this makes complete sense based on the, the great controversy perspective. My, my question, um, and I've had this for a long time, is that nothing prevents uh, someone who keeps Sunday as a day of worship from understanding all of this that we've talked about. Yes. Nothing whatsoever. That's right. What is it about the, 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 Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath that they lose in worshiping on, or in understanding all of these things. Actually, do they, under, do they understand these things on Sunday? I've yet to meet, a, 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 I've talked to lots of Christians and Christian leaders from other churches, and without the proper understanding of the Sabbath in its context, they don't understand the great controversy issues. Well, I don't think many Adventists do. That's right. That matter. That's right, but, but, but we have the opportunity. And, and you say, what, what difference does it make? To me, it's all about an evidence-based approach to understanding God versus a dictatorial, uh, directive-based approach. In, in our understanding, the Sabbath itself exists as evidence of his character. The other days exist evidence of his power. And what happens in the other view is we have evidence of his creative power, day one through six, and now we have, in the other view, like the Jews viewed it, we have the seventh day, evidence of his right of rulership and command power and authority that he commands us to keep the day and if we don't we'll get punished and it's twisted instead of the day of consummate freedom for god's creation to see and know who he is it becomes a day of the most extreme burdens where we can't even walk more than 300 feet on sabbath lest we sin and we have to pin a a handkerchief to our clothing because we're not allowed to carry it on sabbath so it becomes the day of burden and enslavement rather than a day of freedom so let, let's keep that thought in mind and push on. Yes, there's a, a couple of good points. It's so important that Mrs. White says throughout eternity, the whole universe will celebrate every Sabbath. And it's not just our world that will be celebrating it, the redeemed, but the whole universe, angels, unfallen worlds, they'll all celebrate the Sabbath. No, they won't. They will celebrate the character of God on the Sabbath. 
That's what they're going to do. Because the Sabbath is the evidence of God's character. So every week we come together to celebrate this incredible God who created the Sabbath for our freedom to think and to love him. We don't want to make it about the Sabbath. It's always about God. It's always about God. And, we, and, and I know you didn't mean that. So, so, and I know you could take that little, little criticism there. But, um, but, <laughs> but sometimes, we, but sometimes you know, I reacted because growing up, it became so, much, so many times about the Sabbath and not about God. And, and I was more loyal to the day than I was to the God who made the day. Yes. And that is why Jesus went out of his way to heal people on the Sabbath even though he knew he would experience tremendous opposition from the religious establishment because he wanted them to get a picture of what God is like. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, the Jews that that crucified Jesus rushed home, got him off the cross and rushed home to keep the Sabbath. Yes, and so if you have this wrong construction of God's government and universe, he commands obedience rather than a doctor giving orders and pro- providing things for our good, then you can keep the day and kill the creator. Could, what, could that happen today? Well, even in 18, was it 1888, Ellen White said that the Holy Spirit was treated with the same attitude that Christ was treated. And if he would have come, they would have crucified him as the Jews did in our own church 130 years ago. Tuesday's lesson, first paragraph, uh, says, as we have seen, as we've already seen, the Sabbath points not only to creation, an important theme in worship, but also to redemption. Deuteronomy 5.15 tells us, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And so it's making the analogy that not only is Sabbath a memorial of creation, it's a memorial of redemption using the, the history of the children of, um, of Israel, uh, slavery in Egypt, and their freedom. So think about this. What was revealed? What lessons did we learn? out of the freedom of the children of Israel. What purpose in acting this out? Couldn't God have arranged, if he wanted, for Moses to have become Pharaoh and Moses to set the people free as Pharaoh? Get your mind around this. Why didn't it work this way? Because setting the people free from Egypt wasn't a legal problem. If, if Moses was Pharaoh, he could have legally set them free. But it wasn't a legal problem. Their problem was a spiritual problem. He handled it the way he did so that he could show plague after plague the impotence of the false gods and break their minds from false and superstitious thinking and free their hearts from fear and insecurity to these false gods. And if you really want to make it the case, their freedom from Egypt was an illegal freedom. It went against the law. To do it. And this is the problem we're having today. So we don't understand the nature of the great controversy. We don't understand the purpose of God creating the Sabbath as we talked about in the, in the context. If we make it about legal issues, we completely distort the gospel message. And we don't take that message to the world that is to lighten the world for Christ's coming. As Ellen White said in Christ's Opposite Lessons, the final message of mercy to lighten the world for the coming of Christ is the truth about God's character of love. We don't see that when we take a legal process to the world. We see what the, what the writers of the white estate were saying. We see that other thing, an obligation message, a, 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 a message in which we are required to obey, and it incites rebellion and fear instead. And that's what we take to the world. We challenge that message, and we try to use an evidence-based approach Evidence from scripture and experience and science all blended together. Um, yes, hand somewhere. If, you, if you're the doctor, you give me an order and I get penicillin or something. If I refuse to take the penicillin, therefore I'm disobeying you, I'll die of That's infection. Right. So in that manner, you almost have to obey to be healed. That's correct. There is an obedience Oh, that, hey, I, I, I am not an anti-obedience but person. To have the quality, the healing that you need, you have to obey what God tells you to do. Open it, open your heart to His healing remedy. In order to be, you have to take the remedy. You have to obeying would be taking the remedy. Which law? Which law has a stronger <laughs> conviction in your life and authority over your life? The law of gravity or the speed limit? Gravity. Which is uncompromising? 
Okay? God's law, rightly understood, is like the law of gravity. It cannot, be, it cannot compromise. You cannot negotiate with it. It never changes. It's a constant, and it's a constant good law. It's a design protocol on which we were built. And breaking of that law, stepping off a building, the law will not change to meet you in that state. Okay? You cannot negotiate with it. But the reason your loving father said, please don't jump, is because he knew splat was in your future. Well, he does not, please don't jump. He says, thou shall not jump off of buildings. Okay? And the day that you jump, you will surely die. Okay? That's what he said. It's not in the day that you jump, I'll be required by my righteousness and holiness to execute you before you hit the bottom. That's not what he said. And that's what's being taught in the other model. That God, in holiness and justice, must have a courtroom trial, find us guilty, and then execute us all with his power. And therefore, Christ took the execution in our place at the cross. And you read in Isaiah chapter 53 that he was, for our um, healing, he was, he was suffered. He suffered for, by his stripes we are healed, yet we considered him stricken or smitten of God. He did it to heal us, but we thought God killed him. And I'm going to tell you, in conversations I've had with leading theologians in the last year, that's their affirmative position. God executed him. It's wrong. But Christ had to die. I just want to make this very clear. Every time I say something like this, people will go, Jennings doesn't think Christ had to die. We could have been saved without Christ's death. Absolutely not. We could not be saved without the death of Christ. His death was a necessity. There was no way around. Christ doesn't die, humanity's lost. Boom. It's not negotiable. Any more than jumping off a building, uh, the, uh, the Empire State Building, without a parachute, and landing on the bottom, you're going you're gonna to be fine. It's not going to happen. It's not negotiable. Christ had to die in order to, to save mankind. The only, the, only, the only concern is, why? We talk about the whys. And there's some disagreement on the whys, but not whether it was necessary. And to me, the whys come back to, if that's true, what does that say about God? If your version is true, then what kind of God does God become? in that version. Does that support the allegations that we have been told by the inspired penmen that Satan alleged against God in the beginning? If your version is sustaining Satan's argument, there's something wrong with your version. And that other view does. Did you notice a sacrificial animal was to be slain and the blood was applied to the doorpost? Russell shared with you last week a very fascinating article that uh, did a little history of the culture at that time. And when a king uh, would come into a, a country and with his army, that those who were for the king would sacrifice an animal and put the blood on the doorpost of their house as an invitation to invite the king in. Those who didn't put the blood on the doorpost of the house were saying to the king, you're not welcome here, and they would be destroyed. And so the blood going on the doorpost of the house was, was not an appeasement. It was an invitation to God I welcome you. And if you take the spiritual symbology, what Leviticus tells us that the life is in the blood, it's saying symbolically, I have accepted your principles, your life. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The selfishness I want gone, I want the law of love written in my heart. I'm in harmony with you. I'm on your side. I'm your friend. I'm with you. I'm not against you. That's what the blood on the doorpost said. That's why those people were saved. But we twist it. Sacrificed blood, the appeasement has been made, God's not mad, he's gotten his pound of flesh, so he's going to move on to get a pound of flesh from somebody else. Do you think they all understood that when they came at the doorstep? I don't think about one in a thousand probably, or any of them understood it. I mean, if you look at Sinai just a short while later, and God thunders at Sinai, all the people are terrified, and they say, Moses, don't, don't let God speak to us lest we die. You speak to God. And Moses is standing there experiencing the same thing, and he goes, there's no need to be afraid. Same experience, Moses is not afraid, God's afraid. I mean, the, not, the, other kid, the other guys are afraid of God. Why? Well, you, you're, you've heard this analogy before, but I, I think it points it out. You're out with uh, your family, and you've got an unruly, rebellious child who never listens to anything you tell him. Never. Always, always talks back, doesn't obey, doesn't follow through. And uh, he, you're out at Cloudian Canyon, and, uh, and your kid meets a, a strange kid. They're just playing. That kid has a Frisbee. They're playing Frisbee. And your kid is running towards the cliff chasing the Frisbee. It's too far for you to run. It's 200 yards away, 150 yards away. What do you do? You shout. Your kid doesn't stop. You shout louder. Your kid still doesn't stop. You threaten. If you don't stop, I'm going to beat your bottom. (laughs) Your kid doesn't stop and goes over the cliff. Do you pull out a rifle to shoot them so justice is served and they're duly punished before they hit the bottom? (laughs) 
do you draw, do you, when they hit the bottom and they're broken in pieces, do you dry, walk down there, pull out your belt and beat them so justice is served? No, of course not. If they do stop, do you pull out your belt and beat them? No, you're rejoicing. Thank you, thank you. You stop. Thank you. Okay? And so, so this is what happened. Your son stops. You shouted, screamed, hollered, threatened. They finally stop. And then as they stop and they're heading your way, and there's joy in your heart, this says to the boys just met, hey, I want, I want you to meet my mom. I want you to meet my dad. The kid goes, no, I don't want to meet your parent. Ooh, they're scary. No, there's no reason to be afraid. My, 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 my mom's cool. Why is your kid not afraid? They know you. This is the deal. If you don't know the life eternal, they might know you, the only true God. And then when you're in thunder, you know why? Because he's dealing with some terrible situation that nobody's listening and in desperation to prevent them from killing and destroying themselves. Before he lets them go, love raises his voice and threatens. That's what you hear happening. Yes. Ruth thought Moses, though, had already met the burning bush, had quaked in his shoes at that moment, but then found out there was a God of love. It was the true source, and he was able to develop a relationship. Based on that, he was exactly. able to tell the people. That's exactly right. Exactly. Beautifully said. The last sentence in Tuesday's lesson says this. Thus, for us, Sabbath worship experience should be a celebration of God's grace in freeing us not only from the legal penalty of sin, which fell upon Jesus in our behalf, but from the power of sin to enslave us. They stick it in everywhere. Show me the text for that. I looked up in my, I have a a, a Bible software system that has like 20-some or more different Bible versions, and I typed in legal penalty. Zero kickbacks. In 20-some versions, no legal penalty. Penalty of the law, zero kickbacks. Penalty of the law, no kickbacks. Show it to me. Don't create it out of thin air by pulling this text, that text, and pulling it all together and creating a legal system. What we've done is we have taken, this is what Ellen White says, when he says the systems of the earth are, are uh, in Bible prophecy symbolized by ravenous beasts that tear and shred because no earthly government represents the government of God. God's government is represented by a lamb, a gentle lamb. But we've taken the systems of the world and what we call justice and we have created what we understand to be a just system and we've projected it into heaven and we have the exact thing. We have a courtroom scene. We have a judge. We have a jury. We have a guilty with prosecutor. Jesus is our, is our lawyer in heaven. You've heard this kind of stuff. And, and then we have just penalties being meted out. We, we've created a heavenly vision of ourselves. It's not what the Bible teaches. And then Wednesday's lesson, Creation and Redemption, and it uses phrases like um, creation, redemption, sanctification. It says, yet in our fallen cre- uh, condition, creation is no longer enough. We need redemption, the promise of forgiveness of our sins. The, they're saying those are synonymous, I hope. I hope that's what they're saying, that those are synonymous. Redemption, forgiveness. And then it goes on to talk about redemption. Um, redemption is linked to sanctification. I think they're all synonyms, rightly understood. Can God redeem someone without sanctifying them? Can God sanctify someone without redeeming them? Can God redeem and sanctify someone without them experiencing forgiveness? Can you experience forgiveness of God? Experience, not be forgiven, but experience forgiven from God without being changed. This is what Ellen White says. But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, he adds as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all that we could comprehend. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew your right spirit from within me. As far as the east is from the west, as I rem- he has removed our transgressions from us. Notice that. Whenever you get to those texts about erasing sins, purging sins, uh, uh, wiping sins out. It's always from the sinner, not from history or from record books. He wants to remove sin and sinfulness from us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this Sabbath, the day that stands apart, shining brightly, filled with your character, that even though you have all power proven to us by six days of creation, that you are a God of grace, a God of goodness, a God who never uses his power to coerce that as Jesus in John 13 had all power given to him, he got down on his knees and washed feet. You demonstrate that when you, give all power, when you have all power, and what you do with it is you give us freedom to think. Lord, we can trust you. You've proven it. At great expense to yourself, at great cost to yourself, you have come to earth to reveal your true nature, going all the way through the cross and never using your power to stop 
our brutal hands from taking your life. Lord, we stand in awe. We stand amazed. We stand humbled. We ask that your spirit now will bring home this conviction, bring home this knowledge, this true intimate knowledge of your character. May we embrace you. May we love you. May you fill our hearts. May we be changed when we go out to tell the world the truth about you that free us from the darkness that keeps us from fulfilling your mission because we want to lighten this world and we want to see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.